Okay. Okay. Well, what was I? Uh, All right. You were telling a story about that your um, your friend and roommate uh, gets drunk from time to time, a binge drinker. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 this one day, um, he was it was kind of getting obnoxious, and because I was trying to sleep, and I, I was really trying to, you know, I had to work, and and I realized at that moment, at that moment, like that little child that we were talking about, not too angry, but just opinionated in the way of judging, like I don't like, I don't like, even though I'm not getting attacked, he wasn't around me, it wasn't that loud. But then I realized that I told, I just sat there and I said, okay, wait, you know, we're both brothers in one thing, old age, sickness, and death. And we only want one thing and that's happiness. And that's the only thing that makes us one. And if I can't see that, then I won't be able to let that go. And then when I saw it and I chanted the meta and I, and, and I really try, like, I really just accept it. I didn't try. I just accepted the fact that he, too, is a human being or like me or whatever, you know, like in the sense of that way. And then it yeah. just came about where I was like, that opened up a whole door for to love a lot of more people as well, like my family and everything, because I realized it's not about being right. <laughs> it's not about being right. It's just about Everybody wants that. Everybody wants a satisfaction. Everybody. And if they have it, give it to them. Get, show it them in their life that they have it in some way. <laughs> and I was even able to talk to my stepmom. And I never talked to her ever. Like, because she only talked Spanish. And I was able, I talked Spanish too. But I was always kind of shy. And I didn't know how to really. And then I joked around with her. And I laughed. And it was, it was, it was just weird. I, I I apologize to my parents for certain things. Like it was like it was kind of diff. Like it was like a. I even think about crying sometimes because it's kind of like. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Let us call it an epiphany. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This is basically something, though it is formally spoken of in, uh, the suttas especially one that I'm thinking of uh, is the reason why that it's the seven factors of awakening or the Sambo Jhana that has to precede real Metta. Okay. Okay. And basically what that means is, is that recognizing by, by direct observation, that we are all in this together. That everybody is hurting. Yeah. Everybody is hurting. And that everybody is hurting because of the, um, let us say, that they're hurting themselves and they were taught how to do that when they were children. And so that's the big deal. But when we recognize, hey, man, there's a really bigger deal. And that really bigger deal is old age, sickness, and death. Those yeah. things were not going to escape. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then, in fact, um, 
most we can't escape two of them. But the only way we can do that is an early death. So that's the most unlucky. If you're really, really lucky, you're going to get really old. If you get really, really lucky, you're going to get sick, but you're not going to die from it. Yeah. Right. So death is actually the end of it. And that's the ultimate suffering. And the reason that it's the ultimate suffering is because it goes against the deeply, most deeply buried of all of right into the DNA is our self-preservation instinct. Because without that, the, the species wouldn't have survived. It's that self-preservation instinct, and I think that that's probably stronger in humans than it is in uh, other species. Because we've been close to extinction and that we go through a lot of warfare and there has been a lot of danger. And so we have been conditioned uh, to manage that danger well in the sense of being able to get out of the way of dangerous things. But we have failed in the sense that we see danger now in places that where it really doesn't even exist. And so yeah. we go around paranoid and we go around in a state of fear. And one of the things is that we're afraid of mostly is other people. Yeah, we're, we're afraid to be seen in a certain way. Like mm -hmm. we're afraid all, like we want closure, but the, close the door then. <laughs> you know, like just close the door. Like, like that's the whole thing. There is no going back. And that's the hardest thing to understand for all of us. There is no going back. I'm sorry that first girlfriend you had will not will not love you ever again <laughs> the same way. And that's the truth. And that's Look. just how it is. You know? Lucky just stole a piece of chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw her go out and down and and she's out in the yard now sniffing and licking. <laughs> <laughs> Never yeah. mind. Sorry about that. That was something that happened in this moment. And that's beautiful. But it, it was it was quite funny because I remember like the first time that I really felt like I needed to be free from suffering is when I was I, I, I lost my first love, you know, my first girlfriend, um, because in my life at the time. I, she was the, like in my mind, she was the only good quality in my life. Right. Like, oh, that's it. That's all I oh, ever that's had. what you saw. That's what I thought. And then at the time when she left and everything disappeared and all that, I was just left with this total obliterating hatred for life. Like just this total, like, uh, like, oh, wow. Like I'll never, if that's, if that's, if that left, then there's nothing, you know, like in that sense, because that's mm -hmm. all we put our hinge on. We put on our, we put our, when you put life. all your eggs in one basket, then when the basket is gone, you've lost everything, so you think. Yeah, so I think exactly. And it was just like, took me a while to like finally realize that, they, oh, it's okay. That there's actually, it was never a problem to begin with. <laughs> but I was making it a problem because I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what I was meaning then about... Uh, having how how I harmed myself 
by refusing to give anybody credit for anything. And I use the word compliment for that. But basically, it is um, like you were mentioning, that pouting child who sees fault in everything because he's not looking at himself. Yeah. To recognize that, uh, and, and when I figured out that really the reason that I wasn't willing to compliment or to even be truthful with other people or congratulatory was because I felt that I was losing something by doing so. That why should I compliment him when I've already, you know, have a pouting lip about him anyway? Yeah, it, it was funny because I even told my friend, like, I finally realized that all my parents wanted was a thank you. <laughs> it's like, and, and that really changed that, like, like it really did. Like I was like, oh my God, I was kind of an asshole as well. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, like it, mostly actually, <laughs> you know, in my case. <laughs> well, that's actually the case is, is that when we really do recognize Dukkha, we, we understand that, oh, my reactions to dukkha that I'm creating for myself is to try to share it with others. And it's when we're sharing our, our dukkha uh, mindlessly in one way or mindlessly in another, we're still being an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Because we're trying to give someone our shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to take a dump on someone, literally. Yeah, yeah. There is actually, uh, this novel had a profound effect upon me. And the name of the novel is Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Oh, Russian wow. novelist. Long, yeah. long book. He's a great and author. Well, in recent times, I have looked in um, uh, cliff notes or Wikipedia kind of stuff and found that the, the profound impact that that novel had on me is not even mentioned in the cliff notes. But basically, it's like this, that a uh, uh, very, very quick version of the story. A uh, girl works for old lady up in the top floor of the uh, apartment building. Girl has a boyfriend. Boyfriend loves girlfriend, but he sees that old lady up there and he sees how wealthy she is. And so he kills her with an axe. And steals her stuff. The police come in, take an investigation and kind of figure out that it's he that did it. In their closing in on him, he confesses to his girlfriend. By confessing to her, see, he should have gone to the police and confessed to them. That would have been the right thing to do. The wrong thing to do was by trying to share his guilt, getting his, dumping the fear of getting caught for his bad behavior, he dumps that on his girlfriend. Yeah. Guess what? The whole rest of the book is about how bad her life gets because she knows. Wow. 
Yeah, because of her guilt and keeping it a secret for him. Uh, didn't take long, but the guilt and the remorse of, of, of all of that was, was really devastating to her. Okay, so that actually fits correctly and right in with uh, that the Buddha recommends that when the young monk has done something wrong, that he should confess it to the appropriate and to the right people. Okay, and in that regard, it would be to either your teacher or to a senior monk who knows how to handle that kind of burden. But that is, in fact, uh, correctly, that's the job of the priest in the confessional. But most of the, it's just a droning on, and it doesn't mean anything, and that the end of it is some sort of penance that they have to pay. But there is not the issue of go and sin no more. (laughs) That's not at the end of the confessional. And that's exactly the way that the Paddy Mork uh, in the Sangha is set up. And that is, is that every time that they have a Paddy Mork, some places they do it twice a, a month, but mostly it's once a month on the full moon. That's when the monks shave their heads and take a bath. And those are the symbolic parts for also shaving your mind and taking and giving it a bath too. And, and part of that is like taking that dump. And the way that you do that is by confessing all that's happened this month and things that you've done that you didn't approve of yourself, you're going to tell it to the teacher. And they do that the day of the patty mock. And then as they're going into the patty mock, then it does it much more formally. But now it's also formally as a ritual to where there's an actual little phrase that's about two paragraphs wrong. Uh, where every monk confesses uh, and asks to be absolved of that. So that when the monks then go into the Paddy Mork for the recitation and the reading of the Paddy Mork, there is no objection or anything like that because at that time then, and the Buddha said this, in fact, this is part of the tradition, the the Buddha looks around at the Paddy Mork and says, Monk, oh, monks, I see a congregation here that is free from wrongdoing. They have been absolved and finished. Is that not the case? And every monk then will uh, intentionally then look around and agree, I do not see anyone here that is um, being held responsible for wrongdoing. Wow. Wow. That's heavy duty because what that means is is that at the end of the Paddy Mork, everyone is back on friendly terms. We're yeah. back friends again. We're not holding grudges or anything against each other. It's like the practice of forgiveness. It's actually a practice of forgiveness as well as absolution from uh, confession. Yeah. And all of it is done together, and that's why the Paddy Mork is so important. Especially the larger the group of monks, the more important that is. Yeah. So, in fact, there's different Paddy Morks depending upon how many people there are. It gets really complicated. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
uh, the Patty Monk. Um, there's a lot of like that's like a story that the monks use, like all of the compilation of like the Vinaya and all that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yes, the Patty Monk ceremony, the full one, is actually the recitation of then the list of rules of 227 rules. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, not all the rules are followed because some of those are like I've heard you joke about the wool one. I love that one. The wool. Don't carry wool for two miles. Right, like exactly. There's another one which is even more bizarre. Really? Oh, man. Yeah, what? and that is is that monks are forbidden to bathe more often than twice a month. Oh, wow. I mean, I think as a, as a kid, I would have loved that. <laughs> well, the reason for it was is because at that particular point in time, there was a drought. Okay. And so generally all of the um, uh, the monks will agree that at least that rule should have been abandoned. Yeah, too much, too much stink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like after two months, I think I would really make someone throw up. <laughs> you know, except for one thing, and that is, is that if all of the monks are very careful with water, they will all bathe then at the paddy mulk. With very scarce water, two weeks later, they all stinky at the same place at the same time. So you got, you know, <laughs> you can't say you stink. <laughs> Everybody stinks here. Because <laughs> everybody stinks. <laughs> that's but in any case, that's the important point that you've come to. Is that is, and this is the easy way to say it, we're all in the same boat together. We really are Mahayana. This is not possibly Hinayana. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what you mean by that. We really are in the same boat, and that same boat is old age, sickness, and death, and all of the social ills that come with trying to avoid that ignorantly. Yeah. And and that's that's what all of society is. Society is nothing but the sum total of mistakes about how to avoid old age, sickness, and death. Yeah, it really is. And it's funny because there's this, I read a verse in the suttas, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but it said that um, uh, when, I think it was, how does, how, when do the Four Noble Truths come into the world, or when is it Dhamma taught, or it was like, when Paticca Samupada is taught why, like what, what conditions in the world do there have to be? And what are the conditions for a world not to have that teaching? And the Buddha was like, well, there's only three things, birth, old age, or he was saying like that, basically, that there has now, to be that. birth leads to old age, sickness, and death. If you take birth, then you will get old age, sickness, and, and death. But funny enough, that's... And then that way, we in the human world, we we encounter the Dhamma because of that, which is kind of the craziest part is because we're born in a world where there's birth, old age, sickness and death. We have the opportunity to find the freedom from it. Which exactly. is so crazy. It's uh, it's almost Those like dogs have dog dukkha. Yeah, yeah. Dogs have dog dukkha, but they picked a lot of, um, uh, let us say, wise behavior up from humans. 
And because of that, they don't suffer so much. But believe me, you look at a wild dog, especially one in India, and you see a dog that's in really poor shape. Oh, yeah. I, I went to Puerto Rico a lot, and dogs are everywhere. So I know how they are. <laughs> dogs are everywhere running. It's just like Thailand, almost, just running around. There's sick dogs, dogs that are dead, you know, mm-hmm. dogs that are blind. <laughs> But um, so in that in that regard, um, one of the stories, in fact, is about the young monk who sees that the abbot is so well treated by, uh, let us say, the higher class um, uh, lay people who come to the Wat. He gets the best food. He has this, that and the other thing. And the young monk is jealous. And so eventually it comes out that he's jealous of the uh, uh, of the senior monk and the senior monk says, OK, I tell you what, I'll swap places with you. Because right now you do not understand the dukkha of being the abbot. Yeah, yeah. All you see is the rewards of it. You don't have to you don't have to hear all the complaints <laughs> of all of these people. Yeah, like just like when you were a kid, I want to be 18. I want to be 18 already. Mm. No, you don't. (laughs) No, no, thank you. It looks like it's got benefits, but in fact, it's got responsibilities that other people require from you. That's exactly what Donald Trump's problem is, is he doesn't recognize that he got to deal with human beings. Yeah, he thinks yeah. that he's king. He like, in fact, he thinks that Kim Jong Un is a very powerful person in North Korea. I bet you, I guarantee you, he is the most insecure person in North Korea. Yeah. How many people in North Korea have had to kill their uncle and the, <laughs> several people he's killed that are close to him? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy over there. Right. And the same thing with Putin. You think that Putin is uh, uh, good to go all the time? No, he's out killing people left, right, and center because he knows that if you don't kill them, they'll come after him, and he's got a lot of enemies. Yeah, that's that's one thing about having that. It's like, it's so weird. Like, that's what I always say. I was like, if I, I never, as even as a kid, I was like, if you want that type of power, like all of that responsibility, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> like, I just don't see why anyone would. And yet everybody in our uh, country has that disease in the sense of raising little boys. You can be president. I would rather raise a child, be wise enough to not want to be president. Yeah, yeah. like. I just don't understand why you would want to be. I mean, no one even want to be a a politician. Yeah. And even as a like growing up, they used to say that all the time in school, you know, uh, you can be the president of the United States. Now they never say that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) Yeah. No one wants to be. We just realized it. Because they realize, right, that when you when you go into that swamp, you will get surrounded by alligators. Yeah. Yeah, it was 
Another way of looking at it is, is that anybody who wants power and takes power and, and usurps power and gets power, guess what? There's only one way to take power or to get power, and that is to steal it, to rob someone, to take power, right? Everybody has to give the king a little bit of power, and they resent that. And so when you take power, you are actually stealing from other people and they will want to take revenge. Yeah, and it's crazy. But, because... but, but if you give power to someone through a compliment, then they like that because you're giving them a gift. Yeah. It was, it was, there was a sutta and there's a good example of that. Um, and I can't remember like every verse because it's so long, but the Buddha, I think I realized he has a way of like leading you. Like every time you think you got it, he's like, nope, that's not it. <laughs> and then it's like, and then you, you, he, he goes on again and again and again. And then he's like, that's not it either. <laughs> and then he goes for another one. And he was, he was saying that for a monk, when he gets ordained, he might have fame and renown and blah, blah, blah. And he's in a sublime state. Uh, but still, because of this, he just and it's always because he disparages others, because he thinks he's better than everyone else, because he still mm -hmm. holds on to the view that he's that he's working for gain and honor and whatever. And and then he and then it went all the way down, all the way, and the only one that was right was quite secluded from sensuality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like everything else was wrong. And and I and think it's I remember that one. Yes, I think I've seen that sutta. It's crazy because you realize even he'll get you like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then you read and read and you're like, oh, my God, I accept it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you're like, wait, that's not right. And then like and he just destroys like he's just like, gotcha. Like he was so genius at that, it seems like in every sutta. He's like, and or the one where he talks about the greater pleasures um, of practice and the refinement of pleasure. And then you think it's like, oh, my God, you, he just keeps going and going. And like, this man is insane. <laughs> you know, he's just like he's he gives you so much. Uh, he kind of like uh, he's like the Zen master putting you up for 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 a ride. Right. Think about it like this, then. Uh, you know what a uh, you know what a slinky is. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have the idea of a spiral, and this is how the Buddha teaches. He goes around in circles, but he narrows in, focuses down, like that. So he spirals in. Yeah. Yeah. It really is like that, and then it's right at you, like whoop, <laughs> and then you feel it. <laughs> You're like, oh my god, uh -huh. that's right. So he just doesn't go around in circles like the slinky, but at, but the circles are getting smaller and smaller until he gets right down to it. Yeah, it's 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 amazing, and it's funny because once I started to, I went back to um, listen to Bonte Vimalaranzi, and I think you know who uh -huh. that. And wow, I was like, oh my god! Like everything flew by my head years ago when I when I was listening to him. I just didn't get it. I didn't understand what he was saying. I thought he was like, 
kind of a heretic because he didn't believe in, in, in reincarnation and all that stuff. And, um, and now it's like, oh my God, this guy is, a, is basically talking about the same thing <laughs> like that we've been talking about. And I was like, it, and it kind of surprised me too, to, I finally kind of realized like, oh my God, even in Buddhist cultures, there's still a lot of like, there's a lot of people that will bash you if you say this stuff, like, because I've seen it on Discord um, as well. And I saw, all, like, it was almost the weirdest thing. I, I kind of, like, was kind of, like, shocked to see that he, he was mentioning stories about how people really don't like what he's talking about in Sri Lanka and, Bur like, in those Buddhist countries and how they really reject a lot of this stuff. And I was, and it was just, and, and so it's just not the West. Like I used to think it was just the West. The West is the worst place in the universe, <laughs> you know. They're more open to it in Thailand than they are in Burma and Sri Lanka. They're hardcore against it in Sri Lanka. But this is something that I found out about um, uh, Thailand that's taken some research because so much of it happened so many years ago. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was only part of a movement. But that nobility and the noble teaching of the Buddha has been in Thailand and alive and well, but just not open and not public because what you're saying there would be the general response to it. That, that in fact, the noble Dhamma has had to go in hiding because of um, uh, it's, it's dangerous to let it out. Yeah. Uh, and it's dangerous for two reasons. So we'll talk about those reasons in just a minute. But the important thing to finish that point is, is that when Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa started uh, teaching, they actually, that same group uh, in Sri Lanka, brought him up on uh, a Sangha Decessa charge, of, which is actually quite a severe charge of trying to... Um, let us say, break up the Sangha. That's what the word Sangha decessa means, is to decease the Sangha. Yeah, that's like and that. so, and, and so they brought him up on those charges in Bangkok, but there were people in the Sangha, uh, the, the Sangha decessa, by the way, generally has something to do with 20 monks. 20 monks for ordination, 20 monks for the uh, ordination of a, of a temple, uh, uh, 20 monks for a good patty mock, all kinds of things like that. The more, the merrier. But in any case, on that board were some very, very high, powerful monks in Bangkok, because that was a really, really big deal. Uh, and that some of them were nobles. And so uh, what happened in that time was is that there was a challenge put out of Polish scholars to really pick out what was the teaching of the Buddha in, res in respect to rebirth. And what they found was that, er that the, 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 the Dhamma, more or less, of the suttas and all, supported Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And it was only later literature that would, heart that would strongly support. But to that even the suttas that we have translated into English, when they're translated by one who I will lovingly call for a moment a rebirther. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
<laughs> when, exactly. the, when the translations are done by the rebirthers, they will put rebirth into it in their imagination when, in fact, the Pali doesn't have it at all. Yeah. The word deva, for instance, does not mean a magical being. A deva is just a very high-powered person like a king or an aristocrat or something like that. Same thing with Brahman. Brahman does not mean a god. It means the very best. Yeah, like Devi, like they would call like a Ma, a Devi, like in India, like a guru who's a woman, they would call her a Devi. Mm-hmm. Right. And in Asia, the word Deva is, um, uh, let us say, a magical word for a real thing. Yeah. The translations into English is the magical term is not translated into a real thing, which it is, is translated into a magical thing. Yeah. So that we... In English, for instance, the way to say it is, is that in English, we say we, in Asia, better start there. In Asia, they will use magical words for real things. In English, we only allow magical words to be used for magical things. So that we cannot then take that magical word and translate it into something real. We've got to take that magical word and translate it into something that's really nothing but magic. Yeah, yeah, because we can't see it like any other way. Mm-hmm. Well, I so yeah. let's get back then to the point that after they did all of this research, they came to found out that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was, uh, was correct. But they already knew that he was correct. And this is what started a big revolution in Thailand, was is that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was the one teacher who was no longer willing to, to uh, straddle the fence or to speak out of both sides of his mouth. You see, even the Buddha did that. We can also be polite and call it pacing and leading. But <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. it's like this. If people believe in magic and ask magical questions, they will get a magical answer that hopefully will lead them into wisdom. Buddha Dasa says, no, no way, nothing doing. When they come to me with a magical question, they're going to get a real answer, period. They are not going to get a bunch of stuff. One of the examples that I have of this is that uh, my friend David, a monk at the time, uh, at the time when he still had to get his visa, he didn't have his religious things going yet. And so he went to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia to get another visa. And while he was there, he decided to, uh, to visit the, the, the big Thai temple that was in Kuala Lumpur. And he was quite surprised to find that the temple abbot was not a Thai, but a Sri Lankan. Because there's a really a lot of Sri Lankans in, uh, uh, in, in Malaysia, as well as Tamils. So... He goes up to the abbot, and the abbot is talking to an old Chinese lady. And they're speaking in English, because otherwise she would be cheeking, and her naked language would be Chinese, and his would be um, uh, uh, Sinhalese. So they're speaking in English, and and the issue is her husband has just died. And so this monk is giving her all of this stuff about the right kind of pujas and things like this and how he's going to go off and that there and the other thing. And David was thinking to himself, I'm in front of the wrong dude here. Yeah, yeah. But when when that conversation was finished and uh, and the Sri Lankan monk was very happy to see David, a Westerner, 
dressed in orange robes. And when David said that he was from Watsuan Mok, immediately that monk changed. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That the monks actually, so that was the way that it's always been, is because, uh, like Vila Maramsi, he's taking Bhikkhu Buddha Das's position of telling them the truth even when they don't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because when I was writing, I had this feeling that I was being too honest when I was writing about the Four Noble Truths. Like, I was like, but then I realized, I was like, wait, I, I, I can't hold back, because if I hold back, then I'm lying. <laughs> like, I was like, because I was All like, right. scared Exactly. Well, there is an idea of pacing and leading. And that's the way the Buddha's method, that's that whole spiraling in and spiraling in. Uh, a clear example of him doing that is in Sutta number 60 where at the beginning it looks like that he's using Pascal's wager for people to go say, okay, well, maybe you should believe in reincarnation. But by the end of that suit, he's turned everything upside down. Yeah. And, he's, and he's talking about it from the perspective of the noble, that if you know what noble is and you know how to live, why don't you go ahead and do that? Why do you just happen to want to believe because of the possibility of reincarnation when you could actually live according to a noble existence. And so he spirals in on it that way. That's that's the way of, of handling it. And this is where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa said, we've done that for 2,500 years now with only partial success. We've certainly been able to keep a root core Sangha going, but it doesn't grow very much. And so by letting the cat out of the bag, guess what? Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had tremendous support already there in Thailand of the nobles who were already there. Yeah. Including members of the royal family. Wow. Wow. Yeah. They knew about that as well. They knew about it. It was well known and that the source would go back to... Um, wow. Well, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa references his teacher, and his teacher's name was Bhikkhu uh, Buddha Gosajarn. And Buddha Gosajarn was the Samdet Sangharaj. He was the head monk, or let us say kind of like a prime minister uh, of the monks in Thailand at the time. And the way that he got that was because his teacher was also the Sumdat Sangharaj, who was also a, a, a prince who had to disrobe so that he could become king. And that happened in 1916, 17, something like that. So this is all well-known history of these nobles. Yeah, it's like a Bible story or something. Like, you know, uh -huh. like, like all these kings and there's this like kind of inner... Uh, knowledge and but well, it got you would expect yeah you would expect then that that people who have uh, let us say the very best education will in fact sometimes get the very best education isn't that amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah and it's funny because Vimala uh, Ranzi uh, this is just a kind of joke and it's not serious but it's funny because he was talking about the Vasudhimaga and the history of it. There's there was two people who were very um, the key elements to it: um, Buddha Gosa and Buddha Dasa. <laughs> Isn't that kind 
kind of that's funny i just found it so funny like the irony that the two people who messed everything up and have the same name as the two is two people who kind of fixed everything which is kind of <laughs> hilarious and they knew each other the buddha gosa of the vasudhimaga and buddha dasa who translated the, uh, a lot of uh, the commentaries um in pali as well um they knew each other actually which is kind of hilarious that part of the story I don't know, but getting back to um, that issue is that I got to say it this way, and that is the religion of Buddhism and Islam and Christianity, we should give them credit and congratulate them for being capable of building a society. Nobles can't do that. Yeah, we don't. Nobles are in the great minority, and not only that, but the the teaching of the actual noble dhamma has to be done to with someone who is wise enough to get it. Okay, it's like you only push a young bird out of the nest when you know he's ready to fly. If you push that bird out of the nest before he's ready to fly, he will fall. Yeah, yeah. Now, that means that if you're trying to take an individual out of reincarnation view, which would be ordinary right view, and teach him the noble dhamma, it's more than likely he's going to fall into wrong view. Yeah. This is okay, how is that done? Is is that if you say reincarnation doesn't exist, you're not going to be reborn that way, then he'll say, oh, well, that means I can get away with anything. Yeah. And he'll go around me doing more harm because he has not yet dealt with his greed. So we actually have to start dealing with the greed and other things like that and see what's going on before we finally give up on the delusion of me being a per, a permanent self. So back to the whole idea that it's got leaked out that Buddhism teaches no self is actually a very dangerous teaching. Yeah, because it doesn't. Not only, and the Buddha even stayed quiet on that. He said, yes, he didn't say anything. Yeah, exactly. Until the student is ready, we cannot teach that. Because otherwise it will destroy society, which is exactly what Bhikkhu Bodhi said about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Yeah. yeah. That is quoted in the, Wiki, in the Wikipedia about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, why the guy who wrote the wiki, I think I'd like to take that out. But another exactly. one would be, okay, Bhikkhu Bodhi, you opened the door by you putting it out public that you think that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is destroying Buddhism by, uh, uh, let us say, destroying the delusion of rebirth, and you're attacking Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, wait till you hear what I have to say in my own personal attack about you. <laughs> yeah. But I haven't really gotten it out yet. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's kind of like, I... Like, cause it's funny, cause sometimes, like, even with talking to my friend, you know, that I introduced you to, like, it's really easy more for him because he doesn't believe. Like, a, a lot of Westerners don't believe in reincarnation already. They don't believe in 
but they believe in a self, which is hilarious, <laughs> you know, but, but right. it's easier. It's a little easier well, because it has magic. Exactly. We've talked about that before, that there's, in fact, there are four different systems of belief. One is eternalism or semi-eternalism, which means the permanent self, that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Or if I go to hell, I'll be there for a long, long time. So that long, long time then idea is either eternalism or semi-eternalism. If it eventually comes to an end, then it's semi-eternalism, but it's still eternal and eternal, on and on and on and on, with the idea that a, sub, a self has two qualities. One, that it is strong, strong enough to survive death. And number two, it's identifiable. Yeah. Identifiable in the sense that the comma machine knows who to pin what uh, uh, stuff on. That, the, that God knows you as you, so he'll know whether because you did this, that, and the other thing in life, that he'll assign you to heaven or hell or the back gates or something. Okay, so that those two qualities. Number one, permanent and strong. And number two, that self has to be identifiable. Modern physics proves both of those ideas wrong. Logically, yeah. physically, it's a bad idea. But it is a delicious idea in the sense that, oh, that means that I will survive death. I, me, my, it's a very selfish point of view. But what they fail to understand is, and this is the funny part, this is hilarious. How can the soul be strong enough to survive death? And that's me, the soul. I am the soul. And yet I've still got fear, especially yeah. fear of death. So that fear and that fear of death cannot be the soul because the soul is secure and it knows it's secure and it's going to last forever and it's got nothing to be afraid of. And yet the whole reason to believe in a soul is because we're afraid. So now you can see that that idea of a soul comes out of delusional thinking. Yeah, dualistic thinking because it's the Greeks, even the Christians, the, the Jews, believe they called the soul... It was just, it really meant the flesh, the body. Actually, the word for soul in the Jewish... It's uh, been, is right. The word actually has been evolving. The funny thing is, is it evolved right out of Buddhism. That yeah. it would have been a much better thing if the translators originally had translated it as Anatta as no soul. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the whole idea then about eternalism. The next one is that when upon the breakup of the body, then the uh, uh, existing being will be annihilated. Yeah. This is generally the annihilationism or the belief that, that most Christians, when they abandon Christianity, they still have the idea of the soul, only the soul is, uh, is annihilated at the time of death. So we can call that annihilationism. And then there is the typical brand new Buddhist who sees that, oh, there is no soul, doesn't exist, never did, wasn't one, uh, is completely delusional. That's yeah. called nihilism. And the Buddha was not a nihilist. Yeah, no. <laughs> if anything, the Buddha was a temporarilyismist. Yeah, yeah, moment. Yeah, Anicca. In the moment, the self can arise, and then in the next moment, it's gone. 
up and down. Well, suchness. Suchness, suchness, tagata. That's more like the right view of things. Mm -hmm. So we can say then that um, the belief in rebirth is delicious, that this is actually what Paul was selling in Christianity. He was not selling Jesus. He was selling everlasting life. Well, actually, because that's the and, thing. That's, that's what we hear. But he really wasn't. Because if you read, this is what I was telling Willie as well. And you read, he says to the people of Corinth, if you hear about a rapture going up into heaven and this and that, I tell you, do not listen to those people, for they are foolish. If you cause schisms, saying that there's this and reincarnation, re, uh, resurrection, this. Although I will say he held those teachings were going wild, but he was yeah. saying, but you can't that. listen to any of those guys. You got to listen to me because I've got yeah. the magic key, the Jesus. I've got That's the Jesus key to that open that door. You yeah, can't believe in that door without my key. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I was going to say. The only thing that was holding him back really was that he was too attached to Christ. Even though Christ said, do not cling to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he said it. To exactly. Exactly. He said it. That was and, the only thing. And, and so they, they made it into a magic Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And Paul was the one who started making it a magic Jesus because really what he was selling was the afterlife, the whole idea that the, uh, that you get more than the grave if you'll come and take and buy my product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the whole I... well, now here's where all of that happened. It appears that it really got going because of the Greek influence in India. Okay. That it wasn't in, it wasn't until Alexander the Great got to India and got a full version of Brahmanism that the whole idea of the afterlife came. Now, before that, it was uh, assigned to only those who were worthy. In other words, if the priest got enough money, they would pray hard enough and do a um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, an uh, a mummification of you, if you had the, the, the goods to do that, build yourself yeah. a pyramid and all of that, then you might have the chance of becoming a god. But your, your heart has to be weighted with a feather. You can't have a heavy heart. you got to have a light heart. And all of that kind of stuff out of the Egyptians. The Greeks and the Romans picked up on that so that it would be only the emperor of Rome who could become a god. <laughs> Okay, yeah. only the emperor of Rome, exactly, only the Pharaoh, okay? But Brahmanism brought back, oh, no, everybody can do it. Everybody is, in fact, reborn. And that's when the mummies started to appear. Before then, mummies were very rare, but by 300 B.C. or in that area of time is when the mummies were proliferating all over Egypt because anybody could be one. Now any wealthy man could become a mummification because he could afford it. And so this was um, this was the explosion. So by the time of Jesus, this had already become a fairly implanted kind of viewpoint that there is kind of an afterlife. Because they would wrap Jewish people would do the same thing. They would wrap them in linen, make sure that they're the perfumes, everything, the oils, all that and find a cave. They have to buy a cave and, you know, let them 
you know, kind of go. Isn't that interesting? Yes, they did all of that stuff. They think of mummifying Jesus. Yeah. They yeah. treated him like a mummy. I hadn't thought of that before. You're right. Exactly. Hmm. So now that we have that idea that anybody can can be reborn, that is such a delicious idea that it has been propagated worldwide and everybody kind of picks it up without understanding this basic um, dualism that the individual himself feels fear of death. And yet he now has a soul that is permanent and he is that soul. Yeah, and that yeah, soul not only is permanent, but it's identifiable so that the uh, the old books can pick him out and give him what his just rewards are, his desserts. Okay. Yeah. Like, uh, as a Christian, I would even say, like, when I was a Christian, I would kind of question, well, why are you, why are you sad that someone died? Isn't that the best thing ever? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that would be. Right. That's that's uh, you. You've heard the expression. There are no atheists in foxholes. Uh, no. What is that? What does that mean? Well, that means that when you're in a foxhole, it's really dangerous, and everybody in that foxhole is praying to God to save their lives. Okay. Oh and, and yeah. There are no atheists <laughs> in foxholes. The answer to that is yes. You were right. There are no atheists in foxholes because the atheists were not gullible enough to join the army. And they hid. Or if they had to go into the army, they were smart enough to find a way of staying out of the foxholes. It's only the Christians, onward Christian soldiers, who will go to war. Smart people, they don't. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) now we can turn that all around and say at the average regular funeral in the United States, especially in South Carolina, there are no Christians at funerals. Yeah, because all of them are like, don't believe in heaven at that point. <laughs> because at that point, everybody's really sad. They, and so they hire a preacher to come and try to convince them otherwise. Yeah, while everybody wow. is stricken with grief. They That's, should be clapping. Oh, Uncle George is in heaven now. Isn't that marvelous? He's dancing a jig. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I even thought about that. Like, as I learn more and more about, you know, the Dhamma, it's like, it freaks you out because, you know, like it freaks you out. Like it's almost like it's like insanity, literally a little bit like it, it's kind of like. It's almost like kind of crazy because it, it's not like it's almost like what in the hell is happening right now? <laughs> like that feeling like, oh, my God. Well, the answer is take another look. Let's look at it. Yeah, Let's yeah. look at this feeling of what the hell, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because me and Willie were talking about it because I used to say, even like when you're in church, you could see it and you would have to lie. You would have to, because if you didn't, you were a sinner. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just that simple. <laughs> you know, like it's that delusional, <laughs> that, you know, that crazy. Well, what about the lie itself? Isn't that a sin? Oh, yeah, I know, right? That's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's possibly then part of the problem with religion is they always create catch-22s. They always wind up in a conflict when they're not being honest. But it is dangerous to tell people the truth 
because the advantage of Christianity is, is by telling them, if you are a good person, then you will get a reward for that. So that keeps people uh, ordinarily in, in ordinary right view, which is that if you do good, you'll get good results. And if you do bad, you'll get bad results. Yeah. And if you can't see that for yourself, you can go find a preacher or somebody who will tell you all about it. And so that is basically what right ordinary right view is, is saying there is mother and there is father. You should respect them. There are heavens and hells and other worlds. You should respect that too. And all of that stuff is of uh, very little value uh, to the wise, but to the foolish, it will keep them out of hell. Yeah. But like it will because help the real hell is the is the is the mental states that we get into when we get caught thinking we can get away with it. Yeah, that's it. It's uh, it's to help their conscience, you know, like oh, to absolve their fear, like their fear of basically, you know, like of taking responsibility for their own actions. Uh huh. So in a way, going to heaven is a way of getting away with it. And uh, that's another one would be uh, that the pe- most of the Christians, almost every Christian will tell you that the reason that they and all the other Christians are going to go to heaven is because they have been saved from their sins, or let us say that they have been forgiven. Okay, guess what? Forgiveness is just another get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, I can get away with it because I get forgiveness for it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, in many ways, it go it backfires. Even though the whole idea of teaching about heaven and hell is to keep people straight, when you give them forgiveness for bad behavior, they will continue that bad behavior anyway. And yeah, so, yeah. Uh, there's a fly in Jesus's ointment there, in the sense that Jesus will forgive you for your sins. Mm, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Does he? he better- he literally said, that's the whole thing about Paul and the, the controversy, if Paul was even, because remember, he was a Pharisee. Yes, he was a Benjamin. He was a Brahmin. He was a Brahmin, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole thing about, that's why I, like, the, he literally, like, people say, oh, being a Christian, like, I used to argue against people and the church. Oh, so you're telling me you can never be free from this? Because even Jesus said, do not sin. He, why would he ask that if we couldn't do it? Like, I don't understand. I never got that. So I remember I told my pastor, your God sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was like the funniest thing ever because, you know. When I hear, you're, you're drawing an amazingly uh, similar situation or analogy between Christianity and Buddhism especially in the sense of those who teach only metta, okay? Because, in fact, the teachings of metta are exactly the same teachings as Jesus. To take care of the poor, you visited me when I was sick, you take care of me, uh, uh, the the good Samaritan uh, that... uh, 
why do you ornate yourselves when the lilies of the field don't have decorations? You know, all of those parables and, and, and everything. And uh, the foxes in the fields and the birds have their nest and the son of man has no place to rest his head. He's sounding more and more like a Buddhist monk, you know. He's and up. he's and his teaching is the teachings of metta, but the Christians can't do metta any better than the average Buddhist can do. Excuse me, the Christians can't do the teachings of Jesus any better than the Buddhist. Your average Buddhist can do metta. They can't do it because their mind is not straight yet. Yeah. And Jesus did teach about, or at least he did practice the going out onto the, into the wilderness for 40 days. Yeah, and repentance meaning change your mind, metanoia. Repent means to change your mind. It doesn't mean merely to confess. That real, real confession is uh, to uh, re repent or to turn around. Yeah, yeah, don't look back. Okay. <laughs> You no. will become a pillar of salt <laughs> if you look back. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, man. Well, that is actually true within the Buddhist context, too. If you stop looking at the past, you won't be so salty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy because, like, the rela I, that is so true because he was a Pharisee. One thing that Christ did not appreciate or gave credit to was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One was an eternalist, the other one an annihilationist. <laughs> Did you know that? I hadn't thought about it in that respect, but I do know that the Sadducees were more of scholars or second class, that it was the Pharisees that were uh, partly, they were in the, uh, in the Benjamins and in the um, uh, Levite groups. Yeah, like the Sadducees did not believe. They're cessationists, like the evangelical. They're, they don't believe in anything after life. Uh, it's very hard for them to see that. They uh, had the show. Yeah, yeah. And then the Pharisees believed in a bunch of stuff, like demons and ghouls and, you know, and magic and uh, miracles and, you know. You know well, it's not necessarily that they believed in that stuff, but whether they found ways of making money off of teaching it. Well, they found money. Yeah, oh, a lot of money. They made a lot of money. Yeah, that's what the even Jesus said. That's why he went into the marketplace. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. they sold a bunch of crap. Yep. Right. But that crap does have value for the unwise because the unwise need rules. That's why Bhikkhu Bodhi was so critical of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was because he could see that Bhikkhu Bodhi could see that everybody the whole world is full of four-year-olds. Yeah. That, yeah. that very few people grew, really grow up to be fully human. Most of us stay at an emotional level of four-year-olds, which yeah. means you can't just tell them to keep their hands out of the cookie jar. You've got to slap it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, but there are people I feel like that are ready. And I think, how, how would we even, and this is what the whole, like, kind of what you're doing here is kind of like give, getting a, a momentum started, I believe, right? Like for us, like that we can all mm -hmm. kind of pass it along into a regular world or wherever we go. Okay, so this whole idea then about um, rewarding good behavior and punishing bad behavior. 
is basically then every parent and every adult is telling every little kid to keep your hands out of the cookie jar and we're going to make sure because we're going to guard it, but we're also going to have even a better guard, the one up in the sky or in the corner, who's going to watch you. And every time that you're caught with your hand in the cookie jar, you're going to get slapped, okay? Guess what the kids do? They wind up going around slapping themselves for having their hands in the cookie jar. Yeah, yeah. But they don't learn, number one, to keep out of the cookie jar and stop slapping themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right? So we learn both sides of the coin. We've learned both the bad behavior, go ahead and do it. And then we slap ourselves for it. And then we say, but it's not a hard slap because I got, got forgiven. Yeah. And so yeah. you've got all of this mush rolled up into what people wind up doing. And that when we wake up to that whole process, that's what wisdom is, is to wake up to see, wait a minute, wait a minute, that cookie jar itself is dangerous. That's why the, the moms were telling the kids to stay out of the cookie jar when they were four years old. Yeah. The cookie jar is dangerous. If I can see for myself the cookie jar is dangerous, then I can escape that cookie jar and the slapping and the confrontation and the forgiveness and all of that stuff that comes around the wanting to be in the cookie jar. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it takes wisdom. That's why in the Buddha's dispensation, the Four Noble Truths, the deeper levels of it that lead to the, to the idea of this temporary self, this greedy and ignorant, is taught later. And so this is actually kind of uh, uh, a derogatory then for Buddhism in the West to have the concept of anatta being let out of the bag too soon. Because a lot of people will take up Buddhism with the idea, oh, at least in Buddhism, I can get away with it. <laughs> yeah, because this is actually what I said to someone when they were reading me the Tao Te Ching and, uh -huh. and uh, but he's like, you know, it's kind of like he's not practicing that, you know, what they teach. And I kind of said, you know, I think they told you too much. <laughs> they told you way too much too fast. And I well, wish that they it's not so much that it's they that told it. It's that the Western mind wants, oh, this was good information. But instead of putting it into practice, I want more. I want more. I want more. I can see that, and in fact, I went through it when I was in university, and the example that I have is a math book. You're going to take a class in mathematics, you buy the book for the course, the course hasn't started, and I'm reading through that book to the point of getting lost. Mm -hmm. Why do I get lost in that math book? Because I didn't do the examples at the end of the chapter so that I fully understood the math. All right. And I see that that happens in music, too. The kid gets pretty good at the piano, and all of a sudden he wants to uh, take out all of the old grandmasters and play the most difficult music in the world. Yeah, yeah. Never mind, I got chopsticks down, and I've got a couple of hymns down. Now I want the revolutionary etude. 
<laughs> now I want one of the Beethoven sonatas. <laughs> Let me yeah. get a concerto out and bang on that and feel really bad because I can't play it because the skill level is not up to it. Oh, so yeah. that's exactly what happens with Buddhism, that it should be layered. It should be good in the beginning, good in the middle, so that it's good in the end. If we lay a bunch of middle stuff on the beginners, they're going to struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And so it has to be taught in the right sequence with the right yeah. phrasing and meaning. That, by the way, is the rest of that quote, just not good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end, but it's got to be taught with the right phrasing and the right timing. Well, it, and it's funny because I'm pretty sure in the in the monastic community that is very well, you know, kept and everything. But it seems like in the West we don't have. Well, first of all, I just don't we like have the reality. need for knowledge. Yeah, greed for and, knowledge. But I also don't like the fact that we have teachers who aren't monks. I know that sounds a little weird maybe to some people, but I never felt comfortable with that because I'm like, I want somebody who's literally doing this 24-7, who has been doing it for a long time, not just somebody who thinks that they're enlightened and they, and they went to a retreat. That's fine, but that's the hard. That's why I like having you as a teacher. I would rather have that guy than have the guy who says, uh, and his main thought is, hey, this stuff is really good. I can make some money off of this. Well, yeah, but that's exactly. And so they start wisdom books, and they start the Berry Center, and they start the uh, the uh, the Spirit Rocks, and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And now Buddhism has turned into a commercial product that's actually being uh, they're selling the wrong stuff. Yeah, and that's kind of what I always fought for. Like tradition is important to the extent, to an extent, but it's important to contain the essence of what it means because everything around the essence is just like show for show, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, the statues and everything and all that. But like, you know, there's some people that are calling themselves arhants that teach and Not I'm like, that, yeah, but they, they, they do it and thousands of people follow them. And it's, and I, and to me, I'm like one an arhant would never call himself that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just don't feel like he would, guess, he would guess say what? Of course not. And yeah. here's the reason for that. The word Arahat has a particular meaning. And it is not the meaning that has come to the West. And there are questions you're supposed the, to ask. The them. actual meaning of the word Arahat is one who is worthy. You can see the word Aryan built into the word Arahat. Yeah. Aryan. Okay, so one who is then nobly minded is worthy. He is worthy of respect and he is worthy of gifts. That's what the word Arahat means. That was the original use and that is the way that it is normally used, but it is not used as a title or an honorific for an individual. Yeah, like they don't care. I wouldn't think an arhat would even give right. it. Right, <laughs> exactly. A, a really good example of that in Thailand, uh, because uh, he's become kind of famous for it, is Achan Mahaboa, 
who was well known. I mean, the cat was out of the bag. Everybody uh, knew that he was an Arahat. It was like, um, how to say it? Common knowledge. Yeah. Acceptable completely. And no big deal at all. But then they would ask him questions about it, like one of the questions, and I'm not sure whether they were asking the, him about himself or someone else. But the question is, can an Arahat cry? Uh, I've seen that video. Yeah. And the answer is sure. When the when anyone really gets a load of how bad the uh, uh, our culture is, our human culture is so bad for us and, and causes so much trouble. He calls it the toilet full of shit. Yeah, I love that video. I remember I watched it like when I, uh, a few years ago and it really kind of touched me because that's one thing that really led me to like, wow, you know, this guy's for real. Like, obviously, he's not joking, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so. Uh, yes, uh, and that um, Achan Mahaboa was worthy of the kind of respect that they gave him. There was kind of like a million people at his funeral. Wow. I was I was in Udantani when uh, when his funeral happened, and it changed the entire city. Wow. The entire city had to revolve around his funeral. Every hotel was booked. The traffic was just unbelievably all over the city. No way to get your car anywhere within a half a mile or so of the watt itself. Every possible place to put a car was already taken up. And then getting your body into the watt was tough, too. (laughs) It was a madhouse. And so that's how the Thai people respected him. He was one who was worthy of respect. That's, That's what the word Arahat means. Yeah, and there's questions that you're supposed to ask as well, an Arahat, right? Well, there's I certain- know all of those questions, but you, the fact is, is that you can't ask. Here, here's the thing. You can ask questions of an individual to find out is he noble or not. Mm-hmm. It, that if he's a state of soda pond, but it takes a long time to find out if someone is an arahat, in, in the sense of not the, the the worthy one. But now we're talking about the formal uh, high pollutant definition of the word arahat is the one who is free from all ten fetters. So that means that you have to look at him over a long period of time to check those opportunities <clears throat> or those occasions when he would de- demonstrate whether he was nobly minded or not. An example would be, does this guy ever get angry? And my example is always Achan Po, because the, the, the story is, is that Brenda called me uh, all upset because one of our friend, uh, a, a monk, um, she was on the boat with to go over to uh, do a retreat and on the way or back uh, this Thai monk got into a Thai conversation with an old man on the boat and they were talking about that Achan Po was an Arahat and Brenda was all confused one is is that um, uh, Pramarut 
should not be talking to this old layman about Achan Po being an Arahant or not. And to number two, how are they going to know? Yeah. Number three, Achan Po is not normally outwardly known all over the place like Mahaboa to be an Arahant. And so she's all confused. And so I took the opportunity to explain to her that the monks know because they've lived with these monks and that they have demonstrated. For instance, Achan Po, I don't spend a lot of time with him, but over 35 years I have been around him in the early days a lot, and he was never angry. Never saw that guy angry, not once. Never did he have a loud voice or to speak to someone. That's a sign, okay, that he never gets angry. Number two was that he never asked for anything. That's remarkable. He'd never ask for anything. And then, in fact, at one time I asked him for a straight razor because the the monks had all straight razors and all I was ever given was a safety razor. (laughs) And so I asked him, can I have a straight razor too? He didn't answer me, and I never saw a straight razor. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Because they no gifts, and they don't give gifts as well. Well, um, he didn't have a straight razor to give me. Oh, so he'd just rather just not say anything, yeah. Yeah, so there's just nothing to say, because he's not going to go ask for anybody that says that fat old you monk over there <laughs> wants a straight razor. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the whole idea then, and that's part of the training, is to not be greedy and go around asking for gifts. Yeah. So, uh, that takes care of fairly well, right, right quickly. Um, fetter number four and five. If a monk never gets angry and never asks for anything, you can say this guy's on the way. Yeah. And also, you will find that he will never at least share with you any d- doubts that he has about the Dhamma, which means that he's poorly well finished the first three also. That leaves the higher fetters. Yeah. So, fear of death, that's one of them. If the monk is no longer afraid to die and is ready to die, and that generally you don't even see that until there's a, an occasion, like, for instance, at the point of death. How is the guy going to go out? Is he going to go out cheerfully, or is he going to go out like ordinary people, wanting the family around and everybody's praying for him and he wants to love everybody and all of that? No, nope. the Arahat says, bye, folks, I'm out of here. <laughs> That's like Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right, okay. So that would be one way. The other one is the issue, and this is a main one, is of conceit. To where the monks don't compare themselves or contrast themselves with anyone. That everybody's in this dukkha boat together. Yeah. That I can't even complain about Christianity anymore because I recognize they're fulfilling a major function that people did not believe what the Christians were telling them, we would have Bedlam, and we almost got it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that's very. And and so uh, I've got to actually uh, a, a Muslim student 
and we were talking about exactly this same thing, that you cannot criticize Islam because Islam is keeping Tunisia and uh, Algeria and other North, Amer- uh, North African countries together. Yeah. If everybody quit Islam, they'd, what would they start to do? They'd start killing each other immediately. Yeah, yeah, it would go into, like you said, chaos. So we have to give them credit. We have to give them the, uh, the congratulations that they deserve. Just because I don't agree with them doesn't mean that they are not worthy of my respect. Yeah. Huge, yeah. So this is another way of looking at it is in the, the poly word for this is manna or conceit. Now, manna or conceit can lead to either one of two places. One is pride and the other one is jealousy or an envy. Right. If I compare myself to you, then I'm either going to uh, like you because you've got something I want and, and I'm jealous or I like you because I'm better than you are and I know it and you do, too. And so I'm prideful. Yeah. OK, now here's something very curious about that. Um, Western Buddhism and Western mentality because of Christianity has the understanding that the antidote for pride is humility. Guess what? A winner, a lion, is not humble, but he can also be not prideful. Yeah. What we do is instead of being humble, which is actually a false kind of jealousy. Yeah, yeah, it's like pride in the opposite way. Yeah, right. So pride and jealousy are opposites of each other, and the idea is to get out of that duality altogether, to stop comparing ourselves to one another and just accept that we're good enough. Everybody's a friend. Everybody's in the same boat, old age, sickness, and death. Now that we've all been born, guess what? We're all going to (laughs) die. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And we can either die happily or we can die miserably. So this is one of the ways of tearing, telling an arahat, of one who is truly worthy, is one who doesn't compare himself to others. That everybody's acceptable, everybody's okay. And then there is the other one, and that is restlessness. You have to be around an arahat for a long time to make sure that he does not get restless about something and want to leave and go somewhere else. But generally, the Arahat will stay until either the topic is concluded or the student gets tired and goes away. That the Arahat will just not break up, oh, I got to go do this or I got to go do that or whatever like that. No, he just stays with it. Because he's not restless. He's not anxious. He's not full of anxiety to get something done. He's just easy going right now that's, that's. so now i have covered them except for one and that is ignorance but uh, the first one about the fearlessness of death and accepting that that is what is in the Pali is called um rupa raga and a rupa raga Basically, what we mean by Rupa Raga is the self-preservation instinct in its operation. And then a Rupa Raga is the self-preservation instinct, 
when it has to fail. That we do lose. That we want to be a winner, but we do lose. We do want to stay alive, but we will die. And so there's this internal tension between am I attached to the physical world or am I attached to going away? Not becoming and non-becoming, right? Becoming and non-becoming, exactly. Which means that, um, hmm, how to say it? All right, let's do it this way. There is a movie, The Coneheads, and in that movie they play a song uh, uh, and the song goes back to the 1930s with Jimmy Durante. And the song is about, um, did you ever get the feeling that you wanted to go? You wanted to go and then you wanted to stay. You ever get the feeling that you wanted to stay and then you want to go? Go, Ray, me, Faso, La, Ti, Do. I go, I stay. Yeah. That's Have a, you ever I heard, heard that song? Okay. I get it. it. Now that is the duality. In fact, this is the source of restlessness. Do I go or do I stay? Do I live or do I die? Hmm. This is, do I stay attached to this place or do I hate this place enough to leave it and go someplace else? Even if the place that I go is nothing at all, because I've already thought of this place as nothing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so this is the basic turmoil between Rupa Raga and Arupa Raga. And how we we come to the settlement of that is is that I'm good to go and I'm good to stay. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. It's like it doesn't really matter because there is no say in it. So why are you even There's nothing to stay and there's nothing to go anyway. Yeah, exactly. And where I am is nothing much and where I go is nothing at all. And that's that ultimate ownership, like the owner's attitude. I own, I can even, I can choose when to die. Like I can choose, like, you know, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. who are open to it will know before it happens. Yeah, I've heard that before, but that's, uh, that's quite like, you know, how as I've, we practice. I would say basically everybody knows in advance when they're going to die. Just a lot of us go into denial about it. Yeah, yeah. Like you could, like I've heard even people who aren't arhants can even tell before they die. Um, yeah. I've heard a lot of stories that they talk about that. It's kind of funny because thinking about an arhant, like, wow, you know, you're like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> You know. Well, let's let's go for the intermediate ones because the others are are, are bound together. Mm-hmm. In the sense of you can see that anger comes from a deeper source that has fear, anxiety, and competition built into it. So yeah. when you're actually re- inter- eradicating that fourth uh, better of anger you are also getting or are, are, are whacking away at these deeper fetters anyway yeah because it's like that's the whole thing that's like the the pressure if you should it's the same thing when you sh- like when you're thinking about doing something or not doing something or 
or should I, or shouldn't I, or shouldn't I, or should I, or should I, or should I, it's the same thing except on a, on a grosser or coarser level, you know. Well, it's at the moment level. Yeah, it's indecision, yeah. okay? That indecision is, in the Pali, it is Rupa Raga, a Rupa Raga. Which one will I lust for? Yeah, yeah, lust itself. Will I lust for this, this physical thing that's here, or I will lust to get rid of this physical thing? Yeah, that's, uh, it's funny because it's like the ultimate test of, are you, how you're, it's because everybody always has a reason to be good. Mm -hmm. What's your reason? Exactly. There shouldn't I'll be. I'll tell one. you what my reason is because is it's fun. <laughs> I enjoy it. But I mean, like, in the sense of, like, that's where it really hits, uh, like, how greedy we can be when. Oh, so you're telling me that to love someone or to, to be kind to yourself, you need something else to tell you that. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of terrifying to think about because not terrifying, but to some of us, it can be like really terrifying because because the reality is. There is there. It's like. There is a reason, but it's so much like it's just it's in itself. It is amazing to be good and to to love people. But that's almost impossible for people to see because it's like, the you know, Buddha writes about it. The happiness, one of the highest happinesses is the happiness of blamelessness. Yes, exactly. When you've got your when you've got nothing left to blame yourself for and you know that neither does anybody else. Is it when I'm blameless? That's also the same thing as worthy. Yeah. And so when your behavior is completely blameless, then you're worthy. And, yeah. the, and that's the happy, highest happiness of all, is the happiness of complete blamelessness. Everybody will go around shouting, it's not my fault. That doesn't make them happy because they know otherwise. <laughs> they know that they're responsible. Yeah, and that's where I think, like, uh, like when we first encounter any re religion or especially Buddhism, like us fanatics, you know, like zealots for it. Like when we become that, like at the beginning, we become kind of like zealous, you know. Oh, this is real. This is, you know, I want to become an arhant. I will do this. I will. I will. I will. And it's funny because. It's the wrong whole, it's like the whole... It's going in all right, it's exactly right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's, because basic, it's basically like flying in an airplane and finding out that the whole thing is falling apart. And everybody's got the idea, oh, well, we've got to keep this thing flying, so let's get out there on that wing and start fixing it. Oh, no, the right thing to do is to land that plane. Yeah. To yeah. land it. It's dangerous to be in the air. Let's go ahead and land this thing. And then we can do the repairs easily. That's yeah. another concept of seclusion. Let's get away from it all. Let's get out of the air. We cannot yeah. fix this broken airplane while it's trying to fly. We gotta gotta land. We gotta get away from it all. That's it's 
that's like that feeling all oh, that you're all it's almost like that same feeling that you're all one you know like but not in that magical sense but in a real sense equanimity and that sense of everything is good no one is nothing is bad you know everything is just here every it's all good it's okay you know and even if it's bad it's still not mine yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. why the Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and in fact, this is a quote from the Buddha, even though it's very famous from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. His famous quote is, nothing is worth clinging to as I, me, or mine. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so that means point. that even though the world is problematic, it's not my problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because like even in the suttas, or in the chants, um, you like you are the only one who are the heir of your actions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's your, it's you know, it's actually you choose what to become, or you know, in that sense, like in that sense. But it's funny because that's just like always been my whole reason when I when I first encountered religion. I was like, oh my god, you know. Like you look up at these people, like oh wow, something about them is special because they're so happy, or they're so. There's <laughs> nothing about them that is bad, right? That's what we see. Like we only see a duality between me and them, or whatever. And even as a, even when I was like 17, I would read about uh, an anagami who was, who had like it's just a crazy story about you know all of these things and. Um, that he was dying and everybody came around him and all this stuff and it was really beautiful and I was like wow you know I want to be just like that but funny enough the only reason I wanted to be just like that is to get the attention okay. and to do all that, all that stuff and now it's like oh my god it's like the whole path is just renunciating that craving for becoming non-becoming here and there wanting the attention of others because if I'm getting their attention that means they love me and yeah. if I want their attention to love me, that means that I don't have enough love. Yeah, it's a, it's like. A and really... so that means in order to get their love, I've got to go out and do things to impress them so that I can get their love. Yeah, and that's why that revelation of metta is like so powerful, because you're like, you realize you don't have to do anything. No, we're already brothers in this boat. Why should I stand up and yell at people <laughs> to roar? Why should yeah. I be dancing around this boat? I'm just making it unstable. Why don't I sit down and shut my mouth? <laughs> that's, that's why Metta can take you all the way up, all the way up to Arhantship, right? Like that's what some monks have said, that if you really understand. No, it, no, that was one of the big points was, is that no, it is not the Metta it in of itself. It's that you have to do, in order to do metta correctly, you have to develop the sambhojana or the yeah, skills yeah. of the Eightfold Noble Path so that you have unremitting mindfulness. In other words, you can have all the metta that you can have. You can have a big bundle of it. But if you forget to give it out, what good is it going to do you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've got to have the sati right from the very beginning. The number two is, is that you've got to be wise about how you're giving the meta out. You can give the wrong information or you can give too much information rather than giving just the right amount to, uh, to get the student, for instance, into a state of aha. 
So the next one is unremitting um, energy, which is one's right effort, which means you're willing to put in the right effort any time. The next one is unremitting piti sukha, unremitting joy. Why? Because normally when somebody's really angry and you go back to them with joy and they come back with anger and you go back with joy, eventually the anger is going to lose and you'll salt away as a loser because your joy didn't win because you didn't have enough of it. Right? So that unremitting, you kind of have it again and have it again and remember it again. I can handle this. I can do this. And so those are the qualities that uh, are necessary in order to practice the Brahma Baharas, Mutita, Karina, Upeka, uh, yeah. uh, and Metta. So um, <clears throat> then the relaxation, tranquility, and then the uh, Mao Upeka or our stability. Even at even at uh, uh, at sea, Upeka is the uh, sea legs. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so basically, what that's saying is, is that we expect that everything is going to be good for us if our floor, or if the ground is stable, and we don't like to be in an earthquake. We yeah. lose our composure when we're having an earthquake and everything is moving around. Well, guess what? We're in an earthquake all the time, and we do not have any stability. We have to find the stability up here in skill rather than wanting to make the ground solid and still because things are not still. The earth is constantly moving, okay? So this is the idea then of upeka, and with that upeka, only then will come finally the complete unification of mind. And so those are the seven factors of enlightenment. And if you've got those, then the metta is possible. Not only possible, but it's the only thing that you've got left. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, that's the and whole that's thing. the problem with Christianity, because Jesus does teach the Brahma Baharas, but he doesn't teach the path to the, get the mind straightened out because he wasn't around in his ministry long enough. But yeah. he did teach them meditation. He tried. Why can't you guys sit up with me? And what did he practice? He practiced. um, He called it the witness. Right. Well, what does that mean? It means he's watching. He's aware. He's not. And a lot of Christians think that he stayed stayed up that night to be on guard for the uh, um, uh, Caiaphas's military. Yeah. He was not on guard for Caiaphas's military. He was on guard for his own heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That yeah. was what the witness is all about. And so Jesus knew what to teach. And he knew how to teach it. And he started with Metta. But he wasn't around long enough to really get the real teachings of the Dhamma uh, into the people. And so they wound up praising him rather than praising his style or his teaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the whole thing. It's, uh, that's crazy. This is, like, it's just so much like, wow, you know. <laughs> so now you know why Christians don't practice the very metta that Jesus teaches. 
is because they don't have the skills. Yeah, and uh, it's almost and like like hearing also about the Arhan is almost like kind of like puts things into perspective of like what the goal of this is ultimately like in the sense the of the goal like, is that there is no goal yeah, yeah, the exactly. goal is just to stop having goals to sit it, down and enjoy your life and give up on these attainments there's nothing to attain already <laughs> that's the whole that's the whole thing it's like it puts your mind like at a place where it's like one thing i like to tell myself is or like i've experienced is meditating on being a monk will show you where your attachments are <laughs> because you're afraid of what you think you're going to experience or whatever or something but it's funny because when you think like about an arhant you stop thinking <laughs> you know like really if you contemplate their mind well you will stop thinking unwholesome thoughts yeah exactly like you stop <laughs> you stop going after any like that whole thing going you stop going after going yeah, like going in that way. Chasing. Yeah, yeah. You know, rat race. All you that. give up chasing and being chased. Yeah. And that's so we can just sit down and enjoy. Because we're not being chased and we're not chasing. And that's uh Wow. That's why everybody <laughs> keeps getting it backwards because they think that in Buddhism there's something to attain. To attain Sotapan, to attain Arahat, to attain meditation. No, there's nothing to attain. Yeah, like ever since I started lear uh, learning with you, everything has been natural. Nothing mm -hmm. has been forced. Where in beforehand, I was always, it was just the opposite way, you know. And it's a Christian way. You were practicing Buddhism the Christian way, good old Christian way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, be, you know, holy, 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 holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> holy, oh, exactly. And what is her holy is something special. Yeah, yeah, and that's the whole Where, thing. in fact, what we really mean by that is, is when it's something is holy, that means it's whole. Yeah. It's complete. It's yeah. finished. There's nothing left. Like, it really goes back all the way to the whole Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa when you said, oh, uh, try, try again. No, look at what you're doing. What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's funny because when I, I kind of contemplate that from time to time, and, like, I, remem I, remem I, I remember the other day, have you ever seen Finding Nemo? Who? Uh, Finding Nemo, the movie. Yes, I have. Uh, okay, yes, I have. With the clownfish? Yes, uh, with, with the fish, right. Yeah. And uh, Dory is an example of, of wrong the way we do it wrongly. Like, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And then she forgets everything. Uh-huh. She just does it again. Over, it, it, over. Over. Yes, exactly. Yes. I was like, oh, my God, I was, I've been Dory my whole, you know, so for so long. You know, that Dory attitude or the Dory mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, just keep swimming, you know. Uh, keep swimming. Keep looking. Keep yeah, trying. Yeah, yeah. You know. Try, try again. Keep going. Keep swimming. Right. Well, that's so much built into our culture. And it's funny because then the clownfish, he's angry, and eventually he has to learn how to accept, you know. And then she finally kind of 
figures it out. Like, oh, I'm Dory. Dory, mm-hmm. okay. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, at the end, she's just fine. She's fine. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of funny. Like, that's very similar in a sense. Yes, it is. And there's and the the conclusion is almost every movie is the war is over now, and we can relax. Yeah, happy, that's the end of the like movie. This. Happy endings we, do really exist, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's what the Star Wars movies is all about. Is not about all the warfare for the first ninety uh, minutes. It's the last one minute. Where wolf, where the Wookies are uh, having a party? Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of beautiful because you know you really never. Yeah, believe- why not? Let's just have a party. Why do we have to have a war first? Yeah, that's that's really like that's really profound in the sense like oh wow you know like mm-hmm. it's not just a belief it's not just fantasy it's not just a movie that this is a real it's talking about something real in in us mm-hmm. like in our minds this practice <laughs> yeah well that that's kind of like it kind of puts you in a state of like you don't know what to do anymore and you don't care and, and you a, don't care you don't right you don't have to there's nothing, no, no reason that we can leave the world behind without fixing it first. And we can invite other people to leave the world without them having to fix it first. Yeah, and that's, that's what I put in the, in the, in the, in the article. Uh, craving cannot be reasoned with. <laughs> it doesn't want to be reasoned with. You know, it, it it doesn't care. It doesn't. It just wants more. And it, yeah, there is no. Exactly. Yeah, like. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so it's just like you have this feeling that it's like you're kind of thankful, like a thankful feeling of like, wow, you know, like I'm so right. thankful. Yeah. Yeah, this is so good, so nice. It's kind of like to almost puts tears to my eyes because it's like. This is real. This is real. It's not yes. fake. It's okay to have tears of joy, a release, a relax. Everything is so beautiful. We just let it be. It's okay to cry. <laughs> yeah, because like also the experiences that I've been having with my family and everything. You know, you never thought that that was possible. Right. But now you know that the path exists. It's there. Method of the Buddha works. (laughs) It's working right now for sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe that's what I always thought maybe that's what Asian Cha meant you know you don't know you you haven't meditated till you cried maybe in that I sense. haven't heard that yet but that, that that's good so I caught you meditating great <laughs> 
Yes, because this is a cry of of, uh, uh, of letting go. That's what the crying is really about. It's a release. Enjoy. What a relief it is. Because I've always been afraid to cry. Like, kind of. <laughs> I allowed myself or thought I could. So, kind of like I've been crying more than ever before. So, it's kind of like, you know, but out of like the absolute realness of it. <laughs> or, like, you know, in that sense, like, again, you know, that you can, that it's real. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to let you have this moment. We'll talk to you later. This has been a really excellent talk. This has been one of my favorites of all. Thank you. We'll see you later, Dennis.